so when they go to a store like IKEA, they're looking for a bit of a treasure hunt. What it wants to be is what gets measured gets done. The reality is what gets measured gets gained. What I'm writing is a book about complexity, but I'm looking at it as a way that explains success. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hello, everyone. Marketing Podcast, episode number 33. Shaheen Khan here with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well. Happy beginning of fall. (laughs) Yes, I can count on a calendar check. So we are reminded of where we are in the year. So Mm -hmm. let's do it. It's been a couple of few weeks. What is in the cartoon of the week? The cartoon of the week. We are going to return to the market tunist who we've visited about before, a guy named Tom Fishburne. Look him up on Twitter. And in this cartoon of the week, we have a father with a book in his hands who's sitting by the bedside of a child who has a little stuffed animal beside her in the bed. And the father says, okay, on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend me to a friend or colleague? (laughs) And we have hit full invasion of net promoter score or NPS for those of you who prefer initials. Excellent. So where do you even start with this? (laughs) Well, I think for some people, (laughs) let's start with the basics, which is what is NPS? So in 2003, this guy suggested a simple way to calculate one number that a company can use to say, are we going to grow or not? And that was with his theory. And then he called- This was a, a certain Harvard Business Review article. Yeah, it was kind of, the guy's name was Fred Reichheld. And it very quickly got picked up by companies because Reichold insisted that if your net promoter score was good, it meant you were going to grow. In fact, there's no evidence of that. I mean, we'll get into more of that as we go, but it became very popular, I think partly because it's so easy. All the company needs to do is send out a survey or have a survey ask, how likely are you to recommend me to a friend or colleague and do it on an 11 point scale? from zero to 10. Now, what actually happens to calculate a net promoter score is important to understand, which is you have these 11 scores. It groups them into three categories. A nine or a 10 are called promoters, hence net promoter score. You wanna see how well you're doing with promoters, apparently. Eight and seven are called passives, and then everything six and below is thought to be a detractor, is classified to be a detractor from your success. And then you do a calculation, and you do a percentage. Okay, how many of my people were promoters? How many of my people were detractors? And we're going to ignore anybody else. So God help you if you scored a seven or an eight from people because we're just ignoring those. And then you subtract the percentage of detractors from promoters and you get a score somewhere between minus one and one. And obviously a one is perfect and a minus one is horrible and da 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 So it's simple. And, you know, companies put them on their dashboards. They report them to investors. They're kind of have become heavily overused, but that's what a net promoter score is. So the theory is that if you're a nine or a 10, maybe you will in fact recommend, but below that, you're just not going to recommend. If you're eight and seven, you're neutral. So we just ignore you. And if you're six and below, then you not only are not going to 
recommend, you're probably not going to respond positively, right? Yeah. Now, you know, Fishburne's cartoon is about how invasive these have become. I mean, every time I go to AT&T, I don't care if it's I walk in the store and I ask a question or look up my account, I get a text from them that says, how likely are you to refer us to a friend or recommend <laughs> us to a friend? And I ignore them, every one of them. You know, I ignore them in great detail. I wrote a blog post years ago about, would you stop sending these to me because it pisses me off? And there's an excellent article we're going to talk about a little bit here by Jared Spool. And he observes that people get fatigued. We're all tired of these. How many times can I get this same dang survey? And, you know, it seems like every company is battering at our door is saying, how much do you like us? How much do you like us? Will you recommend us to a friend? And it's too much. I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane. And what has happens with these things, that also means it makes it more meaningless. You know, whether net promoter score started with any meaning, it's very quickly becoming completely meaningless because we get so many of the scores and they become perfunctory. Oh, I'll just throw this in. You know, and sometimes you're buying something that is very arcane or something that is extremely personal. And that conversation is never going to come up for me to recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, are yeah. you like, do you like not know what you're selling? <laughs> you know? Well, you know, for example, I mean, for me, the big question here is, you know, how likely are, am I to recommend somebody? The question is, I don't know, did they ask me for a recommendation, right? And right. if somebody comes right. to me and says, hey, who would you recommend for sell service? I might discuss my AT&T experience. Mm -hmm. But if somebody is, if I, I'm not going to run into a friend on the street and say, by the way, you know, you ought to check into AT&T. I mean, that's just insane. <laughs> this is the rev of Linux kernel you should be using on your laptop. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I will admit, though, in the obscurity of obscurities, I do have a brand of screws that I like to use when I build things. Uh huh. But, you know, we all have our things, and that's mine. So. Well, tool sets are absolutely a matter yeah. of <laughs> <laughs> religious issues, right? You and I were talking at the pre-show. One of the big problems here, though, is this is what companies think they mean. But what does a customer get? They simply get a scale of zero to 10. Mm. And they're asked, how likely are you to recommend us? The customer doesn't know that if they give an eight, which as a customer, I've given eights, that's just a fine score. It means I wasn't perfectly, you know, I didn't skip out of the store, you know, singing at the top of my lungs, but I wasn't pissed. So I'll give a seven or eight. Mm. Well, that's considered not very good. Mm. And companies have used these in a bunch of very dysfunctional ways. Yeah. I know a lot of retail operations punish employees for anything below an eight. You know, they're watching the scores, anything below an eight or below, the store manager gets a call from corporate that says, you've got a problem and you better fix it for an eight out of 10. You know, there are customers like some teachers who just won't do more than eight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like nothing, nothing mm -hmm. gets more than an eight. Eight is a perfect score for them. So you really need to understand that and say, well, if so-and-so says eight, that's really very good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if this other person says eight, okay, maybe that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. You have no way of understanding that aspect and many no. others. No, and I think that, you know, as you dig into Net Promoter Score, there are all kinds of errors. So Fishburne starts us off with the fact that they're now everywhere, but there are also a term 
tremendous number of errors embedded in it. Unfortunately, some of the standards, AS9100, for example, encourage things like NPS. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, if companies say, well, we're going to use our, you know, set up our customer service according to standards, they're forced to do these things to meet the standards. And that is incredibly dysfunctional. Oh, wow. So just in order to be compliant, you have to do something that you may not even believe yeah, is useful. May, it may not be right. You may not want to use it. But as happens, once these things exist, the tendency of bureaucracies is to use them and to use them wrongly. And so it gets used wrong. You know, I published a, a, a couple posts about Walgreens because I had this experience in Walgreens one day where I'm shopping and I heard the manager talking to a couple of friends who'd come in like family friends. And he said, oh, could you rate our store? and pointed out where the link to the survey was. And then he said, it has to be a nine or above. Hmm. Now, of course, you know, the minute he says something like that, does that survey have any validity? No, it completely invalidates the data. But I don't blame the manager because what that is evidence of is mismanagement at corporate, that yeah. somebody is abusing the fact that this data exists and, you know, punching. So I published a, a blog post. I got so many comments back from people who say, oh yeah, I'd hear Here's my bad experience as a retail rep. I talk with my students about it. They're all tortured by the presence of the net promoter score. It's more of a catastrophe than businesses know. I think businesses think they're doing something smart and savvy and not seeing the incredible dysfunction that they're foisting on, especially on frontline people, the people they need to do the right thing with customers. Now, we all know that all systems shall be gamed. Yes. So there are several ways of gaming the system here too, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, actually, this article by Jared Spool, I highly recommend. Look him up on Twitter. He talks a lot about user experience and has an excellent article about this. And he noted uh, quite a few ways to game it. So for example, if you don't ask for it until right after somebody does something positive, like purchase a product, you always get higher scores. And there's also value in people dropping out of the process early if they're not going to buy, because then they won't take the survey. And that'll improve your scores as well. I mean, the truth is you can game this thing and you can game it in all kinds of ways. The worst gaming I saw is he has a picture in his article from a Lowe's store. And I like Lowe's, but he has something from a Lowe's store. And it says, your opinion counts. And then underneath it shows an eight, nine, or 10. And the eight is red and says fail. And the nine and 10 are, are green. One says good and one says excellent. And what that mm -hmm. is, is an attempt to get customers to give nines and tens. Because you and I were talking, the big missing information here is that customers do not know that an eight will be used to punish the person they worked with. But in a way, they're sort of explaining the scale. They're saying, yeah. hey, customer, eight yeah. is failure. Uh -huh. So... Give me an eight only if you think I really failed. Right, which of course makes it a three-point scale, but we're, we'll ignore that, you know, for the moment. But yes, but I also think that, you can't say yeah. excellent, good, fail. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> There's got to be something in the middle where. Yeah, yeah, you would think so, but you know, companies don't want to work that way. My vision is that it goes over so well with the boardroom for the CEO to say we're demanding perfect scores in customer service, and everybody nods their head and says, "Oh yeah, that's a really smart, really good thing." Until you look at the details and say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we're punishing anybody who gets an eight or below. Wait a minute. You're doing what? That's just, in, it's insane. So I think, obviously, tracking customer satisfaction and customer loyalty are good things. Mm -hmm. yes. So that part, check, right? Yeah. The part that this seems to fail 
at like many other things in the marketing world is how you measure it and how do you take into account all the salient points that actually help you make things better. And this is really not concerned with making things better. No, it's this not is, really. That's, and that's really a major flaw in it. Yeah, at best, these surveys will have a quick follow-up question that says, why do you say that? And I mean, I'll use that. If I have a problem, I'll use that. And of course, I never get responses to it. Exactly. Um, How often so, are you going to get responses? I'm not yeah. going to tell you why. You yeah, why, do I, why would I write a big, long thing to complain about what's going on? I think, you know, as I've looked at it, yes, we do need to worry about this. First of all, store managers should know. I mean, they know how well their store is doing. And regional managers and district managers will know how well the stores are doing. So first of all, it's not like the company doesn't know what's going on in the stores without a net promoter score. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's kind of a silly idea that if it's not measured, well, what's the old thing? If it's not measured, it can't be managed, which is not true. The truth is, if it's measured, we tend to overmanage it and we ignore and fail to manage those things that don't have a measurement floating around. Yeah, that's those right. are the things that are most critical is the things that aren't measured. What it wants to be is what gets measured gets done, as they say. The reality is what gets measured gets gained. And you go through all sorts of machinations to get the numbers that you want. We used to do Six Sigma for a while. And obviously that relies a lot on surveys and data. And I remember saying this was a process to turn opinions into facts, right? You ask half a dozen people what they think, and that is just opinion. But if you allocate a numerical value to it and you say eight, five, three, four, and you sum it all up and average it, right. suddenly that right. sounds like a real fact. Yeah, I will get to talk about my book in a bit, but I got an entire chapter on measurement in the book mm. and I put it in the section on human factors because the issue in measurement isn't the measurement. The issue in measurement is how people respond to it mm. because numbers have psychological meaning, especially once they get loaded with this affects whether or not you keep your job or whether or not you get a promotion or a raise, those numbers are not just numbers. There's absolutely no way that those mm. can be seen that way. They have a tremendous psychological impact. So I'm including the discussion of measures and metrics in the discussion of human behavior. That's excellent. I was going to ask you and offer one other thing, which is the truth is, okay, suppose somebody said, you know, I mean, let's both give our answers here, but I think some, we ought to answer the question if somebody said, well, what would you do instead? First, I would be in serious touch with the management, you know, the store management, the regional management, the district management. They're the people that really grok what's going on. But then I would also periodically do surveys, have a research firm that figures out a way to do surveys. Maybe it's people standing in a store that talk to shoppers, get more depth and do that every six months and you'll be able to track it and kind of understand what's happening. But you'll get enough depth that it'll be meaningful and you can actually make a change that makes a difference. So for me, that's where I would start if this was, you know, what would you do otherwise? That's what I do. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think a lot of these men Management by metrics are really an attempt to make up for lack of the proper culture, mutual trust, mutual competence, working together to make things better, not being in touch, trying to manage things remotely and not sort of knowing what's going on on the ground. And now you can close your eyes and say, well, I don't know. The number says this. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you do that, you really are encouraging people to game the system and give you the numbers that you want or yeah. worse, just leave. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a, in the context of these things, sometimes I see the benefit of these things if you have nothing in place and you're just trying to get started somehow. 
and you say, I have no data at all, so let me just start somewhere and gather some data. Okay, in that context, I can see it. You're just getting your feet wet and it's a start. But if you're still doing it after a good while, that means you've really never made progress. Yeah, I mean, AT&T has been doing it with me for over 10 years. You know, They like get it. A grip. They clearly like that. Yeah. Is it working for them? I don't think so. Well, actually, I have a major outstanding issue with AT&T. I can't get anybody to actually deal with it because it's very tricky. And I decided that it's subtle enough that I need to write a letter that explains it. So I've written a letter and I've talked to AT&T and they say, oh no, we don't have any place you can send a letter. Oh, interesting. I just want to explain to them what we're after because on paper, it's going to make a whole bunch of sense. But I can't do it. And so, you know, is it working for AT&T? No, not with me. You know, they're about as unresponsive as it can be. But it's also not like market shares in the U.S. have changed much. It's still the main players and they're more or less where they've been. Well, they have this momentum in the market that net promoter score goes up or down. is isn't really going to be effective. You know, they've got momentum and size and they'd have to kind of screw up really bad for you to get a big change. Now, a company that does things differently and interestingly is IKEA. And there was a story about Ikea and how their stores are impossible to get out of. And the jokes that I've heard from kids on all the people who get lost in Ikea and can never find their way out. And it's the evening now and they just grab one of the beds and sleep there. (laughs) Or maybe they start working there. That's like their recruitment strategy. All the jokes aside, they do a bunch of things well. Yeah, they do. In the morning, they get a vest and a badge. And, <laughs> you know, right. they're, now, they're now employees. You're um, one of us now. <laughs> now. I was struck by an article I ran into that talked about they ran a test and they've done some downtown stores in Europe. And, you know, Target has done this as well with neighborhood stores. And it's interesting, you know, Target's done pretty well with them, I think. And I like their neighborhood store that's near to, nearby to me. But when they did these stores, Ikea decided that they should not use the usual Ikea maze approach. We all know the maze approach. You go in one door of Ikea and you, first of all, you have to go. It's kind of like a shoots and ladders game, you know. You have to, uh, you have to go around. by the candy cane forest and then you, you know, all this stuff. But that's what they had done. So they said, well, we've got these urban stores. They don't really need that. So we're going to do away with the maze. Interestingly, and they don't release sales results, but their follow-up with customers found that a lot of customers missed the maze and were not happy without it. And I think it's... It's a really fascinating point because you get a lot of noisy people out there saying, oh, I hate the maze. Uh, You know, you get lost in Ikea and all the jokes and things like that. But it reminds me, as we talked in the pre-show, that not everything that people bitch about or complain about is bad enough to change. For example, there were studies that showed that back in the bad old days when there were TV ads interrupting our programming, people on average enjoyed the programming better because there's nothing like having a cliffhanger and spending two minutes mentally pondering what's going to happen to resolve that cliffhanger while you ignore IKEA ads to get you more interested in the cliffhanger. And it actually paid out well for viewers that that was there. So not all friction is bad, as they, as I like to say. We couldn't watch on earth if there wasn't friction. Yeah, uh, you know, right. Not all friction is bad. So anyway, that's that's the story, is that they were not happy with it. So I think Ikea is going to go back and redo those downtown stores that are smaller stores, but still include a sense of... Well, I, I love the insight that when you go through the maze and meander around, you're imagining yourself with the surroundings that they have created and you're living through a 3D ad, realistic ad. So that that's really pretty cool. And the article was saying that that came about because they had the catalog before they had the store. 
So when they built the store, it made sense to exhibit the catalog and set it up the way the catalog was. So I don't know to what extent this was intentional. Mm -hmm. And then they had that in their flagship store and then it got replicated everywhere else. So the question I had was, Mm -hmm. is this a distinctiveness or a differentiation? (laughs) (laughs) Because when you remove it, that's what's happening. Right. I would suggest it's both. You know, I think there's a little bit to which, you know, like the targets, the small targets now are kind of like many big targets, but somehow they've figured out how to merchandise them so that I find everything I want. So I don't know how they've done that. It's kind of miraculous, but it's very impressive, you know. Mm. But when you go for a smaller store format, first of all, you have to be careful that you maintain the brand. And I think that the IKEA maze is part of their brand. Um, Exactly. I think it's part of their identity. Yeah, it is. But I think it's there for a bigger reason than just because you do it. And I fully agree. Seeing the catalog in real life is tremendous and very effective for But I thought to the idea that came out of Costco that visiting and shopping at Costco is a treasure hunt. Mm. And I think that there's a really important perception in there, a truth in there for customers. Customers like treasure hunts. They like to discover things. They have innate curiosity. They don't necessarily just want to go into the store, find what they want and leave. That's a convenience store. And we have plenty of 7-Elevens around. Mm. So when they go to a store like Ikea, they're looking for a bit of a treasure hunt. You never know what you might find. And maybe you come out of Ikea with stuff you didn't necessarily think you were going to come out, but you discovered it. All the time, because you never know you even needed it. And you're absolutely right. How valuable is it for the customer to say, look what I found? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a tremendous benefit. I've even seen it in Ross Dress for Less, which is not my store, but been in there with my wife. And I was watching because I wasn't shopping, but I was watching people shop. And there was this sense of, look at this. Look what I found. You know, Mm -hmm. here's a silk blouse for $2.50 and things like that. And the idea of that discovery, it's a very human reaction. And I don't know why. I think partly we're driven by tech and everything has to be perfunctory and efficient and uh, no, 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 no. We're people, you know, we like the richness of our lives. We like a lot of things that, you know, some people are going to get frustrated with the maze or they might on some days be frustrated, but overall it's a tremendous reward for them. Ross is a great example. I used to call it the store that you need to go to every day. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only condition where you will find things that you really enjoy because they come and go. And it's just the one that they have. The only way to make sure that the benefit is that you're there every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there are people who are not shoppers in that way. One of my brothers is not really a shopper in that way, which is fine. Mm. You know, You know, this goes back to that distinction I make that, you know, we use Amazon to buy. We don't shop very much on Amazon. And shopping is a physical experience by and large, and it works really well in stores. And so Ikea has got a brilliant shopping environment. And given this experience, my question would be, why change it? It works. You know, I wonder why the digital folks haven't tried to bring that shopping experience to you. You know, why is it that it's so hard to shop online? It shouldn't have to be. Well, you would think that, except that I think, you know, what we take in sensorially, with our senses, Mm -hmm. in a store is vast. So, you know, when we're in Ikea, we're not just seeing, here's a clever or a nice looking buffet. What we're seeing is the buffet in context with the stuff around it. We're judging its size. We're thinking about how it might fit into 
our room. And we could do all that, I think, much better in a physical store. And I think it's very tough to do that in tech. And I think that the problem too is that the people in tech, there's been a tendency in retail tech to say, well, let's just duplicate that. So we use virtual reality. I don't think that's the way to success. The way to do it in tech is to create a shopping experience. Find a way to offer a guide through of some sort that helps. And they're trying. It's just much harder on tech because we're, you know, in a very limited thing. I don't know. Uh, you remember Edward Tufte, the guy that talked about visualizing things? Yeah, um, I went to one of his presentations at one point and he compared it, the dot density of a piece of paper, an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper with the dot density of a computer screen and the computer loses. So the amount of information at the time that you could get across, you had a very limited ability to get stuff across on, you know, more limited than a lot of the people that are pure digital folks will acknowledge. You know, the limitations of digital. Well, maybe the Apple Vision Pro will fix that and we will just... It's going to solve it all. It's going to, well, plus AI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the online guys could start with better search. Yeah. That would really yeah. help with the shopping experience because right now, as you know, when you search, you're not getting what you ask for yet. No, you know, they've made progress over the last you know, 15 years, but it's slow. And I don't know why there isn't more exploration of new ways to do it. But, you know, it seems like there's become one standard. This is the way everybody does it. Mm -hmm. That's what we get. So you mentioned how some of these processes miss the richness of mm -hmm. the reality. And that reminds me of your book again, yeah. which we alluded to last time. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah. And let me back up slightly. I ran into complexity years ago. Well, actually, I first ran into complexity in college back in the 1980s, early 80s, with a math professor who'd been doing some work at Los Alamos National Lab. And that's where I first encountered it. And then it kind of was part of my life, but I didn't connect it a lot with field of complexity. I picked mm. up a lot of lessons from it. Then a few years ago, I was reading a book by Rick Nason about it, and it all clicked. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this is that view of the world that I have, that I cannot find this view in business books. Mm. And so I grokked it and I dug in and I realized how much my career had been influenced by those early interactions with complexity and how much my approach to management and approach to marketing were based on a complex understanding and knowing that that's the way the world worked, not the nice, neat assumptions of the business book approach. So I headed off to follow on that. And I did a lot of research in science and the like. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to write a book about marketing. But as I dug into it, what I discovered is we were missing a core, very important book, which is there was no book that kind of is a foundation book for the field that says, okay, if you want to learn about complexity business, start here, and I then see. you can go leverage off into other things because mm -hmm. there's a lot of different places. So I chose to write that book thinking that maybe I had some good value to bring because I had been involved with it so long ago and because I kind of am a geeky scientist at heart mm -hmm. and because I've also worked consumer behavior. So I I've kind of covered a really wide range of reality that's right. yes. in business. And so what I'm writing is a book about complexity, but I'm doing something I haven't seen, which is I'm looking at it as a way that explains success in ways we've never been able to do before. What does it take to succeed as a business? Because it's a lot thicker than people assume. And when you go back and track companies and you really follow what happens in companies, nobody succeeds on the straight and narrow. It is always 
is filled with side venues and path changes. And, you know, all companies go through that. And that's just part of success. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's fundamentally what I've done is I've gone back. In doing that, though, I made a choice, which is I did not want to drive immediately for a book. So I started writing around the topics and I broke it out. And I knew that I had about 12 or 15 topics, which I call the forces of complexity. And they're kind of the key things that cause these things to happen. So the first force is emergence. A lot of things emerge as we do business. And, you know, if you look at trying to predict the future for a business, one of the reasons those predictions always fail is there's a lot that emerges as we do business. You know, So we make a prediction and then a competitor brings out a product we didn't know was on the way or mm-hmm. the market changes or the Fed raises interest rates or right, there's all these things that we cannot predict cannot control that emerge as we do business. So they kind of come out of the out of the works and we have to manage amidst them anyway. And how well we manage with what emerges determines a great part of our success, whether we know how to adapt to that. Unfortunately, a lot of the business book methods are so linear and so strict that they don't leave room for people to say, wait a minute, I detected something new. We got to figure out this stuff. So you didn't want to crank it out. No. You wanted to, and I've observed you do this really over the past couple of years. I've seen how you've written and rewritten and have thought through and withdrawn and come back and, Mm -hmm. you know, in a wonderful way, trying to just do a great job of this. So where are we now? Well, I'm buttoning it up right now with an editor to start shopping with publishers. So I'm on the verge of shopping it with publishers, and I will start doing that this fall. Excellent. So it has pulled together. Out of that whole process, it's been fun because there's a lot of things that late stage emerged from the writing. There's an old phrase about, I write because I don't know what I think until I see what I write. And that fits me very well. And there's been a bunch of really useful things that I've pulled out of things I've written and said, okay, now how would I help somebody else with how do you manage when you're facing complexity. Because that's a challenge that we're not trained for. You know, we kind of know the linear path of management, top down. You got plans, you got procedures, you got steps to take, you got a bureaucracy with rules. What do you do when it's not that neat and clean? How do you manage in those situations? And it's possible, but you have to, you know, so I've discovered a bunch of stuff. So that's all coming together and working on taking it to publishers this fall. And from there, we'll see. We'll just have to stay tuned. That's excellent. See what happens. You know, part of my job is all the supercomputing and you know mathematically intense computations like we both used to do years yeah. ago. So you know one of my sayings is that life is a series of three-dimensional partial differential equations <laughs> that we linearize and turn into linear algebra so we can solve them. So I feel some of that uh, must be true in management as well, that you get something complex, you have a model that explains it, mm-hmm. or at least approximates it, but you understand the model and how it mimics, and then you take it from there and to simplify it so you can put your mind around it. Well, and yeah, that's what happens. You have to simplify somehow. You have to have models that you'll play with and things like that. You know, you need metaphors for what does it mean to manage when you're in the midst of complexity. And that's some of the stuff I've been working with. And especially, I think that, you know, this challenge of the linearizing is really, I mean, actually in science is one of the challenges they've found is that there are some things that don't linearize well. Right. And then the problem is, what do you do? And right, right. linearizing is a type of reduction. And when it works, it's brilliant. I, did, I mean, all that structural analysis work I did in early in my career, those guys were working almost entirely 
with linear things where you didn't need to worry about time. And so you could say, well, you know, if a 10-ton weight is in the middle of the bridge, we don't have to worry about exactly what the time sequence is in which it arrives there. We could just look at 10 tons on the bridge. What happens? That's why you need actual supercomputers to solve some of these things. So maybe the logical equivalent is that you need super managers to manage these things. <laughs> <laughs> you do. What happens, though, is that you know we have a, a structure that's been come up with in complexity, which is to say there's complicated and complex, and that they're different. Mm -hmm. And the complicated is the world of bureaucracy. So the bureaucracy sees a problem and starts creating rules to solve that problem. And so we create rules and rules and rules and rules and rules. And, rules. and then you, know, you put it in play, and then you realize that those rules don't do everything. So you start putting more rules in place or new departments in place or new managers in place. And that doesn't quite do it. So you put even more of them out there. And it's kind of this increasing complication. And what happens sometimes is when you realize the complexity that's underneath it, you can find smarter, easier solutions. Mm. For example, one of those places is in quality control. So most companies have these massive quality control bureaucracies. However, they begin to slow things down so much that they decrease the overall quality coming out of companies. So very often, those kind of complicated systems can backfire on you. And there are ways to look at quality, which is to assign quality responsibility to people, to vendors, to, you know, basically, if you shift from having rules define everything to having people take responsibility for them, it turns out to be a, a smart trade that's supported by complexity. Yeah. Well, I don't know. This is a pretty heavy yeah. conversation to end the episode with, but maybe that's what we have to do. Yeah, I, I guess so. I was trying to find a, a, an appropriate joke, but I haven't found it yet. But, you know, complexity by definition is complex. Yeah. Well, actually, okay, here, I'll connect it back for us. So here, we'll end with connecting it back. I think that actually the IKEA pathway through the maze is an incredibly savvy, complex solution because it allows all kinds of things to be assumed by the customers going through by saying, all right, we're just going to replicate the catalog essentially around the store. Then customers are making their choices about what they want to pay attention to, what they're going to watch. Instead of, you know, a lot of merchandising says, well, we want people to walk in and see mm. this first and then see that and then see that. And that's kind of that rules-based complicated solution. At IKEA, they create a world. As people, we're really good at sorting through that kind of stuff. And so they rely on people's natural ability to do that. And it's a savvy solution that works very well for them. So I think in that sense, uh, you know, they could have made it far more complex and failed, but they figured this approach out because they do have a problem. They offer so many goods. How do you stock them? You know, it's tough. They do a great job. All right. So thank you. Really looking forward to this book that you're writing. And if you want to bring some excerpts of it here for us to discuss, uh, All right. please do. And let's do that next time. All right. We'll do. Thank you, everybody, for being with us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to the next one. Take care. Take care. Thank you, Doug. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.